The Afterword is brought to you by Audible.com, a leading provider of spoken audio information and entertainment. Listen to audiobooks whenever and wherever you want. Get a free book when you sign up for a 30-day free trial at audiblepodcast.com slash afterword. That's W-O-R-D. Hello, I'm June Thomas, welcoming you to The Afterword, a Slate podcast in which I talk with the authors of new nonfiction books. My guest today is Maggie Anderson, whose book Our Black Year, One Family's Quest to Buy Black in America's Racially Divided Economy was published by Public Affairs. Maggie, thanks so much for coming into Slate's New York office this afternoon. Thank you for having me. Maggie, Our Black Year is fascinating, challenging, and sometimes a bit heartbreaking book about individual and community empowerment, about making conscious decisions about how we spend our money. Tell us about the project that the book chronicles. The project is called formally The Empowerment Experiment. The project started because we were just trying to find a creative way, a way that would not just pacify our guilt about our not doing enough to empower our community and give back to our community. A creative way, a smart way, an influential way to, number one, take a stand in honor of our business owners, our unsung top-quality business owners that we truly believe are the key to rescuing our community, and number two, educate those outside of the community about how our community um, suffers and actually is starved to death economically. We wanted to prove that what people see out there about black America is not a reflection of our propensity or our capacity, or our potential. What they see is the residue of a bad history here, of racism in America, of how that's impacted our community. And, you know, we have this psychosis, this problem with self-loathing and how it encourages us to support those outside of our community instead of those businesses in our community. We wanted to educate the world about that phenomenon and how all of that works to starve African-American communities. And that starvation, I, we believe, is the absolute reason um, we suffer from all the social crises um, we suffer from disproportionately. So we wanted folks to think about why that happens and not just report on the fact that everything wrong, you know, the, the, whatever, whatever the bad number is, the high number or the low number are dropping out of school, recidivism, unemployment, whatever it is, we're at that point. So we wanted folks to talk about other things. So for those reasons, we crafted the Empowerment Experiment, our pledge to completely live off black business for an entire year. Now, you write in in one of the early chapters, black kids can go their whole lives without ever encountering a black business owner. Why is there such a crisis of black entrepreneurship? Well, it didn't used to be that way. Uh, Kids, like every other kid in America, regardless of their ethnic group, could go to the corner store and see an owner that looks like them and be inspired by that owner to do good things and care about their community. Actually, with integration, as wonderful as integration is, uh, we lost our focus on economic empowerment. We had to build up our businesses, and we had to support those businesses as a matter of survival when we were segregated. When integration came along, we chose to, I guess stick it to the outside world by showing you how much we can spend money with you. We're like, yeah, we'll show you. (laughs) Walgreens or Woolworth, we'll show you. We're going to spend our money with you. And in making that point, we 
probably unintentionally abandoned some of those would-be Walgreens and Woolworths coming from our own community. Mm -hmm. So those hotels, cosmetics companies, banks, insurance companies that we had and were the pillars of our community, we left them to support those mainstream brands. And then a bunch of other things happened after that. Um, It just started a horrible domino effect in our community. Once those corporations that ignored us before started to see our buying power, they started to recruit our top talent Mm -hmm. so that they could um, get more of those consumer dollars. So when I was coming up, in the 70s. The good thing to do, the point of all this was to get a great job at a big white company. That's how you make it. It was no longer to be a fantastic entrepreneur. Mm -hmm. So the consumers left. Then those would-be entrepreneurs, folks like me, that could have been a great business owner, you we left too. You have an MBA and a, and a law degree too. Yes, I have a – yeah, I'm overly credentialed. <laughs> <laughs> Spent a lot of time in school. I'm a glutton for punishment. But yeah. yes, um, I do have a bunch of degrees and I am a businesswoman but not an entrepreneur. And we need more folks like me to choose entrepreneurship in our community. After that wave, we also um, – started to realize in our communities, you know, there's white flight. So for that reason, our community started to suffer. And then um, ethnic groups, uh, immigrant groups, just looking for a piece of the American dream, uh, saw this phenomenon. Here's this great class of consumers that loves to spend outside of their community. Why don't we set up shop here and, and make the dream a reality? And they did. And now that's what we have. Our communities don't have black business owners anymore. They're full of everyone else. And most of our money goes to uh, corporations and big brands that live off that dollar and don't reciprocate that loyalty with doing business with our business owners. So that's why there's no businesses in the community. Yeah. And, and some of, I'm just going to read out some of the eye-opening statistics that you mentioned in the book. Less than two cents of every dollar an African-American spends in this country goes to black-owned businesses. More than 11% of whites and Asians own their own businesses compared to 7.5% of Latinos and 5.1% of blacks. White-owned firms have average annual sales of $439,000. Black-owned firms, $74,000. In 1997, African-Americans represented 13% of the population, but owned only 3% of all U.S. businesses, which generated 2% of the nation's business revenues. Those are kind of glum statistics, aren't they? Yes, yes. And those are the statistics we hoped that mainstream America would start talking about when they talk about the black community. And so we just wanted an aha. (laughs) When folks talk about, you know, all all those bad numbers about black kids killing each other and dropping out of school, it'd be nice to follow that up with, but you know what? The dollar only stays in the black community for six hours. Then maybe someone would say, no wonder they live at the bottom. So I, I, I'm glad that the that the book is able to to get those kind of important statistics into the national dialogue. So let's talk about some of the concrete changes. And when you're saying we, this is mostly your family, right? Yes, you, you, yes. you and your husband pledged that your family would would uh, keep the money in the black community that you spent this year. It was 2009 that you 2009, yes. And so you shifted your finances to a black-owned bank. You used a black-owned home security firm, kind of black-owned dry cleaners. But then things got trickier, right? Some necessities that right. were very hard to to locate so that you could keep the money in the community. Yeah, what was sad was this, you know, this journey of empowerment we thought we were embarking on, for the most part, in many ways, became just a year of going without. Just the basics that, you know, people always assume that we spent more money than we normally would have. 
spending the way we did traditionally because black goods from a black shop cost more. But since there were so few things that we could buy, we spent a lot less money. I mean, we wanted to buy a treadmill. We needed a new car seat. We needed housewares. We needed um, electronics. And those areas where especially uh, black consumers over-index and overspend, we have zero in terms of representation. The, the worst of it is in children's stuff and toys and clothing. You can't find anything from black businesses. But you go into any Toys R Us in America, it's full of black people Mm -hmm. and that we have nothing to show for it in terms of business ownership is a really sad fact that should make all of us think about how racially divided this economy is. So yes, there's a lot of things that we could not get and we had to just be very creative and very resourceful and stay focused on the experiment because it was it was a huge challenge, especially on the girls. I just want to mention one of the tips that I found useful and kind of inspiring is the idea of buying gift cards yes, from yes. African-American-owned franchises that may not be close to where you are and so – but you still want to support. If you buy the card gift cards from black-owned gas stores or – food franchises and then spend them or use them at mm-hmm. conveniently located places. Do you still do that? Yes, we do still do that. <laughs> uh, in my wallet right now, you'd find a BP gas card, a Quiznos card. A Quiznos is very good with this, by the way. They have a lot more black franchises than people think. McDonald's, Burger King, and Subway. The problem is you got to find all of those factors. you got to find a franchise, franchised company right. that actually engages in franchisee diversity, and a lot of them don't. Mm-hmm. So a lot of them don't even have black locations. And then you have to ha- find one that has the gift card system So, right. and then find that location. Right. So there's a lot has to work, but we've been able to find that, fortunately, in Chicago. I was just going to say, just to clarify, that the city that you yes. live in and that you are facing these challenges is Chicago, which has really a high African-American population. Right? Yes, yes. So, so it's, 1.4 million in right. the Chicago metro, metropolitan area. And we do, I think the number is, at least it was during the experiment, that we had the highest number of black-owned businesses in the country. Wow. Uh, more than D.C., Detroit. and But the point is that they're all concentrated in those same stereotypical areas, food, restaurants. But, you know, you can't find... Uh, uh, auto mechanics or athletic apparel, grocery stores, hardware stores, drugstores. You can't find any of that stuff. One drugstore uh, in all of Chicago owned by a black family, and they, they don't even sell over-the-counter drugs anymore. It's kind of a therapeutic um, mm-hmm. medical supplies mm-hmm. shop. So, yes, it's, 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 we got a lot of businesses, but they're mostly sole proprietorships, right. so they're not employing anyone. Yep. They're all concentrated in those same uh, industry, so we need to branch out a lot more, and I, I, that's what we try to do in the experiment: promote folks to go into those opportunity spaces and be pioneers, so we can do some of the stuff we used to do. Well, um, let's just take a break to give away some books. Before we get to the giveaway, I want to let you know that this month the Afterword is sponsored by Audible.com, and they're offering a free audiobook to any U.S. listener who signs up for a new 30-day free trial. Audible has more than 100,000 audiobooks available for download, as well as audio versions of newspapers and magazines. Membership also includes free access to the daily audio digest versions of the New York Times or the Wall Street Journal. You get to choose which one you want. You can listen to your books on your PC or Mac, burn them onto a CD or upload them to your iPod or other MP3 device. 
Our Black Year isn't currently available on Audible, but I can recommend The Souls of Black Folk by W.E.B. Du Bois. I suggest this because in her book, Maggie cites Du Bois as a pioneer of the movement to support black businesses. In 1900, he was even involved in the formation of a group called the National Negro Business League. To get your 30-day free trial, which will allow you to download The Souls of Black Folk or another of the 100,000 audiobooks available on Audible, go to www.audiblepodcast.com slash afterword. If you use that URL, the afterword will get the credit. That's www.audiblepodcast.com slash afterword. And now let's give away some books. Public Affairs has very kindly given us three copies of Maggie Anderson's book, Our Black Year. If you would like one, send an email with the words Our Black Year Giveaway in the subject line to slateafterword at gmail.com by 11.59pm Eastern Time on Friday, March 23rd, 2012, and we'll choose three winners at random. If you've been lucky in one of our previous giveaways, please don't enter for at least three months after a win to give other listeners a chance. We'll contact the lucky responders so that we can get their postal address. And if you have any feedback about the podcast, please send it to the same address, slateafterword at gmail.com. One of the most depressing stories of the book is that of Farmer's Best, owned by a man who became your friend and a supporter of the project, Kareem Bea. Can you tell us about Farmer's Best? Kareem is still our friend. He sits on the board of our foundation. And he and that store represent everything we could be and everything that we're not in the black community as an economic force. That store was perfect. It was exactly what the black community needs. It had, you know, we learned in the experiment that for some reason black people aren't entitled to bananas or asparagus (laughs) or bagels or salmon, um, the kind of stuff that I eat every day. So that when Kareem showed up with Farmer's Best and offered fresh produce, meats and fish in the heart of a food desert on the south side of Chicago, he should have been a dream come true for the south side of Chicago. They should have flocked to that place and that they didn't it represents how far behind we are in terms of um, our desire to economically empower ourselves and just how far we've come away from our cultural tendency to support each other folks did not go to that store because it was black owned And the assumption in the community, in the black community, about black businesses is that if it's black-owned, it's inferior or that something's going on. It's a a, a front for a a criminal activity or just something has to be wrong with it because there's no way that a black man can own a grocery store with quality goods and services and at value prices. So because we're just stuck in that mindset, Kareem failed. He did everything right. The problem was with us. So we we promoted the store. We had him in the news. And ultimately, and this is is why it's even hard for me to face Kareem to this day, I believe in his heart. He thinks that the empowerment experiment probably killed his store. Had he not told the world that he was a black entrepreneur trying to promote healthy living and give great healthy food to the black community, maybe folks would have just come to the store. It was a great store, regardless of the owner. Maybe folks would have come and support him. But that we told everyone that he was black could have been the downfall. And that's just heartbreaking just to think about it. 
coming back to what you were just saying, one of the strands of the book that I imagine was most difficult to write was about your conflicted feelings, your own feelings about some of the black-owned stores that you found that felt depressing or unappealing, your annoyance at other successful blacks who chose to shop at more bougie places, maybe like Whole Foods rather than patronizing Kareem's store. I imagine that was hard, but you you're pretty clear about what was going on there. Yes, and 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 you know, it's a warning to Black America, you know, they see me as the biggest cheerleader for black businesses. You can't find one bigger than me in America. I'm in Mrs. Buy Black America now. <laughs> but at the same time, I want folks to know that this book is a call to action for us. I'm tough on us because we can't just blame everyone else for our problems. And part of what um inspired us to to write that part of the book to really get into get away from those business issues and get into those cultural issues those personal issues is because we knew that nothing is going to change no matter how much data we put out there no, no matter how much we demand more of corporate america no matter how much we inspire entrepreneurship if we don't get everyday folks to believe in black business again, to believe that being black and being part of our community is a good thing, is something that should make us proud. And a lot of it comes from middle and upper class folks like us. Before the point was to get out of the hood, to make it, only because folks were oppressing us before, denying us of our rights and our opportunities. So the point was to make it out to show the world that once you give us a chance, we are equal and we can be some of the best uh, citizens and, and business owners that America has ever seen. But somewhere along the line, we lost that focus. The point was to get out just to get out and get away from other black people. And that that really hurts us, especially when it comes to trying to get those kind of people to support our businesses. That That's a private issue. That's a delicate issue. That's something that has nothing to do with the outside world. We have to fix that ourselves. And our hope is that as we show some of the fantastic businesses uh, that we do have and some of the wonderful people uh, like Kareem, who are choosing to be entrepreneurs, maybe we can break some of those stereotypes and maybe we can inspire folks to believe in ourselves again. We just need that spark that, I guess, Barack Obama to really just stand up and say, look, isn't it fantastic that I am a black business owner? We really want people to be high-fiving in the street about <laughs> supporting our own businesses. But it's it's really, really sad when we're amongst ourselves that, that, all right, I'll support a black business if you make me. You know, it's this burden. You know, it's this, it's not something that we want to do. It's in the book, The White Man's Ice is Colder. It's something that we say jokingly. It's something that we promote in our movies and our entertainment about how bad black businesses are. You know, we wear it as a badge of honor that we don't live in those communities anymore, that we don't have to go back to those poor places. And it shouldn't be that way. Other communities are proud of, of, of everyone in their community, even those poorer places, and they do what they can to give back. And, and we've just lost that. And that's our fault. So given your MBA, your tendency toward organization, which comes through in the book, I'm sure that you have spent a lot of time thinking about, okay, how do we address this? Obviously, you did this project, you've written this book, 
But what are some of the things that people can do to help build up black businesses so that um, you, you don't get this terrible leakage from the community that you that you document in the book? We had no idea that things were as bad as they were. So the, the first step is really this, just continuing the dialogue. I think that if we can get more mainstream America, more folks outside of the black community to see why our community suffers and to see all of these economic disparities, we can encourage some serious partnering, some smart deal making. Um, I was just talking to some folks at Kraft um, who had seen some, some news coverage of the experiment. The head of procurement at Kraft is black and cares about these issues. And she was telling me how, and I didn't know this, that the, the Oreo cookies, the white stuff in the middle, that's made from a black company. Yeah. So one of the things we're thinking about is really showcasing um, from some of our great American brands those products made from diverse suppliers, those diverse franchises, those, those diverse vendors, products on the shelves. What I want to encourage from corporate America is to get them to market to us not by showing that black manager dancing in the aisles. How about showing us some of your black suppliers and your vendors and saying, you know what, when you buy Oreo cookies, you support this guy. And he employs 200 people in places where other folks won't. That's why you should buy Oreo cookies. So that's one of the, the first steps that we're really trying to get into in terms of the project moving forward, encouraging more of our um, well-meaning, well-intentioned corporations who do do business with black businesses to start promoting those businesses to the community and start marketing to us that way. We bought a bunch of our products from Walgreens, mm -hmm. from our local grocery store, Jewel, um, that many folks don't know about. Our pizza, my husband's shaving cream, our ice cream. This is stuff that we go to mainstream retailers to buy because they've taken a chance on black businesses and stocked their products. So that's one of the main things that we're focusing on moving forward. Besides that, I just encourage us, particularly black consumers, to do little things like make sure they have black professionals doing their taxes, uh, making sure that they put money in a black-owned bank, that gift card thing, making sure they subscribe to black-owned um, uh, newspapers and magazines, little tips like that, just to get them excited and to get them going. I'm never going to encourage folks to actually do this experiment. <laughs> I'm not that crazy. I'm smarter than that. But if we can get them started and sh and corporate America can show us some of the things that are already available to us, I think we can make a huge difference right there. You know, the Black Year wasn't just uh, an attempt to spend money consciously, although it certainly was that. It was also a project to bring attention, as you've said, to the economic situation of black neighborhoods and the state of black entrepreneurship. And so while you were doing this, you got quite a bit of press attention. And one of the things you write about was the negative response that some people had to your media appearances. Some people called the project racist. Some white respondents compared it with white people vowing only to shop at white-owned stores. What's your response to that? Because I know you have one. Yes, we do. Uh, we do have one. Fortunately, for every negative response like that, I must get 100 yeah. positive responses. But it was troubling in the beginning for folks to see this as, as racism or, or see us as racist. We are not. Uh, I personally, I come from a mixed racial and ethnic background. I, my family are Cuban immigrants. My, my mother her family is from Spain. So it's, it's, it's really not an attempt to take down anyone. But we do understand that, you know, just looking at it from the outside, looking in and just seeing black people decide they're only going to support black businesses. We understand for some 
who do not understand what's going on in the black community, how they can have a negative response to that. My answer to that is the way we see it, what we're doing is no different from buying green, buying veteran, or buying American. When we say buy American, we don't say that because we hate the Canadians or Mexicans or Indians, even though we are trying to retain the jobs that for some people think um, we're promoting when we, when we don't buy American. So we say buy American because we're patriots. We say buy American because our economy is suffering. We say buy American because American companies, American manufacturing, they create jobs in some economically depressed areas. That's what buying American about is about. And that's exactly what buying black or conscious consumerism is about. It's about employing the chronically unemployed. Black employers employ black people. It's just a fact. I, I wish that wasn't the case, that we had to go to black businesses to find jobs. But that's the truth. And black unemployment is in some places four and five times that of white. So I have to support black businesses if I want to create jobs in the black community. Black kids need black role models. They have to see other successful people in their community besides gangbangers and drug dealers. So I have to support black businesses, local black businesses, so that those kids can have someone else to look to. So those are my justifications. Mm-hmm. And, and, and like I said, it's no different from buying American or buying green. And I encourage folks to do that too. What we want to inspire is among all kinds of everyday Americans, spend your money in ways that empower struggling communities and promotes important causes. It's your way to do something every day to make sure you're helping someone else. That's what in my community, We need help in the black community, and I'm black. And I remember growing up in Liberty City, uh, which is a very economically depressed part of Miami, Florida. I think that what I'm doing can help places like Liberty City and the West Side. So that's why I support black businesses. I do not do it to hurt anyone else. And I do think if more of us were to start thinking this way, instead of criticizing the experiment, all of America can see a more productive black community, and that helps everybody. The year you chronicle was 2009. Which of the changes that you made in the year that you've written about have you continued through 2012? You know, the sad part about this is that since we've been doing this now, uh, living this new life for going on three years, uh, we have what we call now the EE graveyard. Um, If you know that, if you read most of those statistics, black failure rates in in business are, are crazy high. And because we've been doing this so long, we've watched a lot of our businesses die. So Jocelyn, my clothing store for my girls, she's gone. Tracy, my wine shop in the store, she's gone. My coffee shop, he's gone. My furniture store, he's gone. Black businesses typically last just about a year, and we've borne that out in this experiment. So a lot of the places that I was supporting during the experiment, I just can't support now, and that makes me really sad. It inspires me to keep going. We've had some great new finds since then. Basically, what we do is if we need something new, like I needed pest control, uh, we let Kara have for her sixth birthday her first sleepover. So lots of planning, you know, going to have 10 girls at our house. Three days before, we found 10 unidentified flying objects in our kitchen. So I could have just called the Orkin Man. That's 
basically what most Americans would do. But I took 10 minutes. I went online and I found What's Bugging You Enterprises. And it's owned by a great guy. He came over that day. He fixed our problem, gave us a discount. Turns out this guy is a deacon in his church, comes from the black community, employs in the black community, has his own 501c3 where he uh, is a boxing and mentoring program for fatherless black kids. So that's where I gave my money and it took me 10 minutes. So that's just how we live now. If we need something, we check online, we make some calls to see if there is a quality black option available to us. If we can't find it, we can't. But the point is just to have that in our mind before we make a purchase. Let's see if we can help our community in in making that purchase. That's great. Maggie, thanks once again for spending this time with us. That was Maggie Anderson, author of Our Black Year, One Family's Quest to Buy Black in America's Racially Divided Economy. I also want to acknowledge Maggie's co-writer, Ted Gregory. The book is available in bookstores now. And if you have any comments about our discussion, send them to slateafterword at gmail.com. Our engineer was Chris Wade. The executive producer of Slate Podcasts is Andy Bauer. Thanks for listening to The Afterword. For Slate.com, I'm June Thomas.